podcast this week, we're live in London and in conversation with James Cameron! <laughs> Amazing. So spontaneous as well, I love it. Uh, hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special live edition of the Empire Podcast. Members, exalted members of the Empire VIP Club, prepare to shit yourselves with your mouths wide open. Not my words, Carol, but the words of James Cameron in Empire Magazine in 2014, when the great director was talking to us about what we could expect from his forthcoming Avatar sequels. There were just two back then. You'll shit yourself with your mouth wide open, he said. Naturally, I immediately bought 10 tickets for a movie that didn't then exist. But it does now, because 13 years after Avatar revolutionized cinema, made 3D cool, brought us to a planet we'd never heard of before called Pandora, and became the biggest movie of all time. Twice! which is a hell of a flex. We're going back to Pandora again with Avatar, the way of water which opens in cinemas next week. And so to celebrate, we have gathered here in the lush surroundings of the Odeon Lux and the bustling heart of London's West End to celebrate the incredible career of James Francis Cameron, the man who has directed some of the biggest and best movies of all time. He's a man who directed The Terminator. Oh, this is good. Aliens. Yay! I mean, he only directed eight movies. It won't take that long. So, uh, The Abyss. Yay! Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Yay! True Lies. Yay! Titanic. Yay! Avatar. Yay! And now Avatar The Way of Water. Yay! And a cuddly toy. Very exciting indeed. So Avatar The Way of Water might just rewrite the rule book yet again, folks. And in just a short while, you're going to be hearing from the man himself in an extensive interview about his career. But first, and this is something that we have actually pre-planned and not just a desperate attempt to fill time because James Cameron is stuck in traffic at the Chiswick Roundabout, the Empire podcast team is going to natter on about all things JC. And by JC, of course, I mean James Cameron, not Jesus Christ or our Lord and Savior. John Carpenter. So first up, will you please welcome a woman who is a queen, but not an alien queen, thank Christ. She is a geek queen. Please welcome Helen O'Hara. Hello, Helen O'Hara. Hello, Chris Hewitt. How are, How are you? you? Good, good, good. Excellent, excellent. Caught up? Yeah, good small talk. Uh, next, please welcome a man who arrived here tonight fully nude muttering something about wash day tomorrow, nothing clean, right? Thankfully, he's found some clothes. Will you please welcome our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer! <laughs> All right, okay. I see you. <laughs> I, I see you, James Dyer. I see you, Helen O'Hara. I see you, Chris. <laughs> I see you. We can't have everything. Should we just do this for 45 minutes? Yes. I see, I see you. Uh, James Francis Cameron. So... We are on the express elevator to hell going down. Uh, so, yeah, when did we first encounter James Cameron? And I, and I don't mean in a kind of, ah, it's James Cameron in my living room kind of way. What's, when did you first see him? I imagine, because we're all of a certain age, it was Aliens or The Terminator. And not for me, but you go I want to know, what was it? What was it? Tell me. Genuinely, I think the first one I saw was True Lies. Mm. 
because I wasn't allowed. What? To, I wasn't allowed to go. My parents were less permissive than you. We know this. And then I had to work my way backwards, basically, from there. I, I That's may not have how you seen, watch the film, I don't Helen. Remember. That's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. I watched the film in the right... You know what? I'm not going to explain it to you right now. Uh, but yeah, I may have seen The Abyss first, but it was either The Abyss or True Lies was Did my very first one. I did. I stared at it and then I rewind it. I stared at it again because that's how I worked <laughs> yeah. in those days. And, and um, I, I still love it. It's still one of my favorites. That's amazing. True lies. I saw it three times in the cinema in the days when I didn't see everything three times in the cinema. Okay. Hang on. Jimbo, I know you've got a lot to say about James Francis Cameron. <laughs> and I'm, 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 I feel I'm going to say that every time I say his name now because um, I Googled it earlier on. I found it as his middle name. So um, yeah. you got lots to say. On Jim Cameron, and you, Christ knows, you've said it a lot of it uh, already in the past. But Hell's Bells, Terminator Two, did that pass you by? I was young, and I wasn't. You I think that I was young. I was. Thank you very much. <laughs> How old were you when Terminator Two came out? Um, Five. She was slightly younger than we are. Yeah, like eleven or twelve. Because uh, because I know it was a fifteen, and I know I went and saw it in the cinema and had to blag my way in because I was I think fourteen at the time, but. Okay. Fourteen is more blaggable than yeah. 11. It was doable. It like was like a stretch, a thing, you know. Yeah. So yeah. So I I couldn't I couldn't see that in the cinema, and I wasn't even allowed to get out in the video shop when my parents were looking. So Hard. it took a while. Wow. See, okay. my mum gave no fucks whatsoever. Like she literally rented Aliens for me the day it came out on VHS. Yeah. And I'm trying to work out how old it would have been, but it probably was about. 13, 12, something like that? Well, it came out in 86. I can't do math. You're 63. Yeah, so. So, <laughs> so older than that. Yeah. No, I would have probably would have been, when I, cause, but when it was, because obviously VHS it windows would have been were weird. It would have been 87, yeah. yeah. The maths is fun, guys, but let's move on. <laughs> no, I, I, I yeah. like the maths. So 13, so, yeah. I think it was 13. So pr actually probably 12. 12 coming on 13. This is fascinating. Sorry, chat, sorry. So math. Might been, math. Math is math. the math. Let's do the yeah. math. Uh, yeah, okay. So aliens for you, Jimbo. Yeah, but, but so the reason for this, the reason why my mother was prepared to print this out for someone who's vastly underage because I she had worked on Alien my mum had in, in a slightly oblique capacity and I had been on set of the original Alien in 1979 uh, I remember none of it but I was on set as a child and so her thing was oh, oh we should watch this film and then I can fill you in on this incredibly traumatic experience you had that you have clearly repressed since then and uh, and so she hide it out and so, so we watched it together I was 12 and she would tell me to hide when it was the scary bits but that's all of it, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a lot of it. Yeah, it was many. It was many. You know, the 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 the, the chest burst scene in the in the catacombs. That was the all the in the, in the hive. Okay, so that okay. Was, that was really the bit. All right. So, what about Terminator? Was Terminator a big thing for you? Yes, very soon after that, Terminator was what began my love affair with Arnold. Not literally that came later, <laughs> uh, but for the one to try and in France. Yeah, like that was that that blew my mind because I had a, I had a friend who was slightly older, and so he he would rent out like 18s when I wasn't able to do it. And we rented out uh, Terminator many, many times. Was utterly obsessed with that. The, actually, the Aliens uh, VHS, literally, so I used to rent, it became, I became obsessed with this film, Aliens, and I, I rented it so many times that I went in, the guy in the store said, these, because you remember like back in the VHS, oh, you were all far too young. Well, you know, so <laughs> sell-through tapes, the ones who sold in like shops were like 10 quid each. They were not the same as the ones you'd buy or rent in Blockbuster, which were designed to be watched many, many times. They were very expensive, about 100 pounds each. And so... He said, literally, it would be cheaper for you to buy this £100 tape than to keep coming back here every fucking week and renting this film. And so he, would try to, he tried to sell me the physical, and I said, no, no, it's fine. I'm good. I'm good. I can keep coming back. Wow. Me. But uh, yeah, I literally rented it. It must have been, well, 50, 60 times. I was That's an obsessed. incredible grasp of economics. Yeah. Can I interest you in a social media platform? Hey, you don't know how much they charge to rent it. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably around the same. I was, uh, I was first introduced to uh, James Cameron 
James Francis Cameron in, uh, I think it might have been The Terminator actually might have been my first exposure to him. I wasn't aware of Piranha 2, which is Spawning. a film that he doesn't recognize. He yeah, I don't think he, he would describe it as a film he directed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah, the Terminator was was just amazing, and then Aliens was. I had very very similar story to you that we had lots of video stores in my hometown, and my dad drove around town until we found one that rented it uh, to a. Well, I would have been ten years old at the time. Here, here's an. I have an eighteen rated, really really <laughs> violent movie, young boy. Thank you, thank you very much. It was Northern Ireland. It was a very very different place. Uh, so, yeah. So that's really where I kind of first became aware of what he was capable of, mm. although I'm guessing I didn't really become aware of him as a, an entity, as a director, until much, much later. And you hadn't seen Alien. You went into Aliens cold. I don't know. I don't know. I definitely hadn't seen Alien. Okay. Otherwise, I'd be in an institution. But, you know, <laughs> my mum filled in the gaps. Okay. Uh, all right. So why are we still talking about this man? Some... Years later, yeah, uh, and you know, as I as I said there at the beginning, he has directed in his career just eight films, including Avatar: The Way of Water. Prolific is not James Cameron's middle name; no. it's Francis. <laughs> I googled it. Yes, uh, but he has had a seismic impact on box office, on cinema, on how they make cinema, yeah. and on our poor psyches over the years. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think he's well. First of all, he's always pushed the envelope. He, when he trained himself up to become a filmmaker, he also trained himself in every job on the set, and and you know wanted to understand and know basically everything that was going on. And that still seems to be the case, even though he's working with vastly complicated VFX now. Um, so so technologically, he's always been pushing the barriers. Monetarily, he's always been pushing the barriers. He's made the most expensive film ever made at least twice, twice on the record. Mm -hmm. um, he's obviously then also made the most successful film at the worldwide box office three times, including the one that was twice. Um, <laughs> so like he's, he's hard to ignore just from a film history um, point of view, especially given that we pay attention to blockbusters. We consider popular cinema important as well as art house cinema. And so he, he's, that was he's a dig a at massive, sight and sound. I don't know if you caught that. It was quite it, subtle. Well, I mean, not a dig, but like, you know, it's an, an acknowledgement that it exists, I think is useful. So, um, so yeah, so, so I think like he is very, very hard to ignore just from that point of view. He's also really good. Like, I feel like his worst films are very good by any reasonable standard. Um, um, Piranha, okay, we'll just leave that we're, aside. We're ignoring that. We're, we're leaving that to one side. Um, but, you, you know, I mean, what's his, what's his least good film? Oh, that's a very difficult question to answer. Right, because they're not bad. None of them are bad at all. <laughs> you can cop out and say one of the documentaries, but that's exactly. not really Exactly. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. But, like, I, I, I mean, I adore The Abyss, and I know that's the mm. one people go to, but I, I absolutely it's love brilliant. it. It's got so many great moments, that movie, mm. and it's so... The, the the set pieces in that are so fantastic. My robot vacuum is named after one of the little robots from the <laughs> abyss. I just love it so much. Which one? Um, little geek, not big geek. It's it's quite a small vacuum. <laughs> you're, you know, so. so you're big geek in this relationship. I'm and, big geek. Uh, right, it's okay, little geek. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I I think it's brilliant. I also think um, he does what a lot of your favorite filmmakers don't do, which is acknowledge that f women exist mm. and have interior lives. Wow, that, that felt unwarranted, and... but okay. Let's, let's go with that. <laughs> I don't mean I don't mean you guys don't, but like I feel like a lot of the filmmakers that you grew up on and admire, and who are part of, quite frankly, James Cameron's generation, 
do not share his ability yeah. to write a decent female role. But, and he has an incredible ability to write a great female role yeah. and has done so consistently throughout his career. It is actually a sorry state of affairs, isn't it? That if you look up on the internet, uh, James Cameron Hallmarks, it will say, strong and textured female characters. Like, this is so unusual that it deserves special mention. That and running feet, weirdly. There's another thing. Running apparently. feet. R- running well, yeah, feet. Those, those the low... motif of running feet. That's a good point. Films. Yeah, films. Yeah. And of course, nuclear bombs. Yes. Nuclear explosions. And uh, corporate malfeasance. Corporate malfeasance. Mm. These are great IMDb keywords. Well, this, is the, this is the other thing. He's, you know, I mean, as a, as a big old lefty, he's also, he stands up for the under, underdog consistently throughout his career. He is, you know, very, very wary of capitalism, despite being super good at it. You know, he's, <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a lot to love about that for me. <laughs> Does he have a badge? Super, super good, good at, at capitalism. capitalism. Well done, James. You've earned your super good at capitalism badge. You've got to stop watching Hey you Dougie. Really I do not want to stop watching Hey Dougie. It's amazing. I want James Cameron to adapt Hey Dougie after he's finished uh, with the Avatar movies. That would be incredible. Uh, but yes, he is super good at capitalism. But you know, the, the uh, he's also super good at uh, developing themes about the environment and environmental themes and about how basically, and this is fun, we're fucked. And we're all going to die. And that's been something that has been part of his work from the very, very beginning. Uh, Right back to me, I'm going to ask him about it in the uh, the Q&A. But, you know, one of the student short he did when he was when he was at college was about the extinction of the planet. Fun. Uh, But it was clearly was something that he was thinking about. I mean, the Terminator is is about that right from the off. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, he kind of came of age in that sort of Cold War era where you know, global disaster seemed imminent. And Mm. I think people who are smart and were paying attention did grow up with this feeling of we need to, you know, we need to look out for that. I mean, unlike now where everything's fine. Well, but this is the weird, (laughs) this is the weird thing. Like now maybe we're like the frog in the boiling water, you know, maybe we're just, it's been going on as background noise for so long that nobody seems to be as alarmed as we should be, but it's like 90 degrees in here, you yeah. know, and possibly literally next summer. Um, so it, yeah, I, I think it's, it's weird that some people saw the reality of the threat and some people just kind of don't still now. And, and, and I think he's, you know, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, he got a lot of kind of flack for that, especially with Avatar, where it was like, oh, it's a you know, very thinly disguised environmental parallel, um, parable. And it's like, yeah, yes, it is. Yes. That, that's, that's good. And maybe we should do, I don't know, more of this. And I don't want to get back on my hobby horse of why do we keep making the greens, the baddies in movies, but why do we keep making the greens, the baddies in movies? Why do we keep having the bad guy motivated by attempting- As I've said many times, Helen, Thanos is very misunderstood, radical environmentalist. I think we can all agree. But this is my point. It shouldn't be Thanos trying to save the environment. It should be Cap, you know, and it just, ugh. Anyway, so so I, at least, you know, James Cameron is is getting the sides right, I think, in the way that not everybody is. All right. Okay. So um, should we talk about Avatar? Because we got Avatar, The Way of Water coming Let's. out. And this movie comes out in 2009. Uh, I looked up on the internet. It did pretty well at Apparently. the box office. Yeah. I'm responsible for all of that, by the way. Or really? In yeah. what way? Because I did all the coverage. I was on set. Did I mention that? I was on set of Avatar. Uh, but I wrote Empire's coverage for it, and that's why it made all the money. 
That's that's that's, that's science. It. You can't argue with science, Chris. That's, okay, that's what happened. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's what, what did you do on set? What did you see? I saw. Uh, I well, you know the, the when he does his pattern speech, his his welcome to Pandora. You saw uh, Quaritch. Uh, yeah, I saw Quaritch. Yes, indeed, I saw the, the thing that he does in front. You know, it looks like it's a big uh, like a ventilator that looks like the American flag. So it's a deliberate pattern reference. Uh, and wandered all around the pods. So I spent the day on set. Uh, John Landau. Were you just like about. eating jujubes the whole time? I was eating jujubes. Uh, people's eyes actually it was curious. Uh, but yeah, that was fun. And just little things like so I got to play with the little the RDA guns they had the little machine guns and it's a really random thing you never even see it in the film but the magazines are full of uh, like rectangular bullets they're not spherical they're rectangular like the casings not the actual bullets because uh, it was just he was just like well obviously it's more it felt like you pack more into a magazine that way so it just made more sense the level of detail that they're actually thinking about the shape of the which you're never going to see on screen and yeah that's what they were I may or may not have stolen one Really? Yeah, I do have it at home. <laughs> James has just admitted to a crime. I can is say that, that because Disney didn't own it at the time, so it's fine. Okay. Statute of limitations yeah, is fine. It's, it's, uh, it's lifted. You can commit a crime in 2007, I'm guessing you were on set, right? Yeah. 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 In New Zealand. That's 15 years ago, and that's totally fine. It was. There's an okay, as your lawyer, just picked. please both of you stop talking. <laughs> if anyone committed a murder in 2007, it's you were totally say. fine. No. <laughs> the Empire Podcast absolves you. No. You are no. all Once good. Again. It's true. If you want to commit a murder tonight, no. you'll be fine in 2037. Okay, just stick it out until then, and all is good. Yeah, but Avatar is, you know, how many times has this guy been written off and you know Titanic he gets written off Titanic well, he had a razor two. blade taped to the side of his monitor and he had a little thing on it saying uh, use in case film sucks like literally <laughs> but genuinely like because I did a big career interview with him god it must have been what five or so years ago and he was saying that at that point he was 100% certain that was the end of his career like uh, that, that was it he was 100% this is it. This is the last film I'm ever going to make because it's cost so much money. It's gone so over budget. There have been so many stories in the press about, <laughs> about the PCP and the fucking chowder and whatnot. And the fact that, you know, when the boat's ass is up in the air, they couldn't get the lights up high enough because none of the lights, it was too high. They were like, and they hadn't thought it through. Little things like that. And so there were all these stories and it was costing so much money. And the studio was like, mate, you have fucked this. And he was just like, yeah, I might have fucked this. <laughs> um, and then... You know, they did a test screening and it went off the charts and then the studio execs saw it and they were like, I mean, it's still going to die on its ass, but at least you made a good film. So we're not going to look like idiots when it dies on its ass. And then it didn't die on its ass and people saw it again and again and again. And then there were all this money and then they were making him coats out of money and then he made a house out of money and it was just ridiculous. And 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 there it was. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because he says he learned a lot from the abyss of how to make that film. And he said that the regret he has about the abyss is that he couldn't tie the philosophical aspects and the emotional aspects together. He felt they were two distinct threads that they don't really marry up. So I kind of disagree a little bit because I think it works really well. But I think he, he wanted it to be more seamless. So he took it as a greatest compliment that Titanic, which is an effects-driven movie, is not seen as an effects-driven movie. It's seen as a love story. And he was like, well, that means I've succeeded because that's what I was trying to do. All of these effects, all of this money, but it's a boy meets girl story. It's Romeo and Juliet on a boat. Uh, and I think that's why it works. And it's the same reason, that's why it made all the money, that's why everyone loved it. It's why, you know, everyone now pretends they don't love it when they secretly love it. And he always said like, when he redid it in 3D, it was so that men could cry and no one would notice because they were wearing glasses. And I was just like, I cry the shit out of that film every time I see it, I have no shame. But 
I, I think that's that's his, his talent. Every single film he's ever made is a love story. All of them. Every single one. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why they work so well, because they're about emotions and they're about characters. And all of the shit that goes on around it, whether it be alien worlds, sinking ships, androids, aliens, all of that, it's all just background. It's all background to the to the emotional stuff. There aren't many lines in cinema more romantic than I came across time for you. I mean that's that's pretty good. That that'll work, right? Helen love the work. I, I, I feel like that would work, yeah. Yeah. I've 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 also said you know what I think is the hottest line in cinema history, which is 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 Hicks saying, "Draw me like me. one of your French girls." <laughs> no, it's, it's Hicks saying, "I think we should take off nuke the site from orbit." It's the only way to be sure. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, and, yeah. He's, and he's he's saying it because he's echoing yeah. obviously Ripley, who's already said it, and he is just taking her on her word. He is just trusting that she knows what she's talking about. He is treating her like a competent human being. While also himself being a competent human being, oh my god, mm. it's so hot. But the way he looks, though, when he says, "It's the only way to be sure," oh, with "fuck me it. eyes," oh. yeah, it's just amazing. It's just where he goes. It's not like we're engaged or anything. Oh, uh, oh. I mean, but it is. You're totally engaged now. Yeah, that is. I, I guess you know, looking at aliens back in '86, that was the first time I, I, I unconsciously was shipping someone. Oh my god, I was shipping Ripley. And then and you Hicks. found out his name was Dwayne. His Dwayne, yeah, but he he yeah. made Dwayne cool before Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. That's how cool Dwayne Hicks is. Uh, and yet you're just watching aliens going, I hope they, this crazy, these crazy kids make it out yeah. okay. I hope they don't I crash. I sure hope they don't crash land on another planet and then get killed off screen. That would be terrible. That Worst would be awful. decision ever. Yeah. But it's, it's the power of aliens. And I realize we started off talking about Avatar, but fuck it. Uh, <laughs> we'll get back to Avatar and uh, we'll, we'll talk about the other movies we haven't mentioned uh, real quick as well. But it's the power of aliens that it still, for me, gets the heart racing every time I watch it. The end, you know, mm. Bishop's Countdown, oh. the, uh, the the bit where they fly away from LV-426 as it, as it explodes behind him. Another nuclear explosion in a Jim Cameron movie. Tick box, tick your box. Uh, and it's just pulsating every single time, even mm. after Alien 3. Fine movie, fine movie, but come on. It could have ruined Aliens, and yeah. it doesn't, and that's testament to the power of it. It's the greatest film ever made. I will die on this fucking hill. I will die on this hill. Aliens, 23 yes. Key to Commerce, uh, 1080 <laughs> Brazils, I think you'll find, is the greatest movie ever made. I mean, I'd watch that. I, mean, I would absolutely I'd watch absolutely. that. See, Alien Queen stuffing a chicken. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I prefer it to Alien as and myself. because better. Well, yeah, Do you I mean, prefer like, to no, Aliens Alien, versus Alien is Requiem. a very elegant, beautiful, haunted house in space movie. You know, it's, 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 it's stripped back. It's, it's brilliantly constructed. Aliens, though, is like fun. Like it's yep. still scary. I am a wuss. I am still scared, but I'm also having fun. I'm yep. enjoying these characters. I want, I'm rooting for these people. I care about them. I'm really invested in them in a way that I, I, I'm not really an alien, mm. even and with all the, you know, great but there's dinner also, scenes. There's, there's an emotional heart to it, which there isn't in Alien. Alien has no heart whatsoever. It has the scares and it's brilliantly constructed. It's like a perfect sort of horror movie in that regard. But Aliens has that, you know, and even more so in the special edition where it kind of really hammers the fact that she's lost her daughter in that kind of, uh, you know, uh, so whether she's essentially, she's died of old age while she's been away, 57 years, and then Newt becomes this adopted daughter and it's sort of the, the bond between them and that runs all the way through it. It's, uh, it's, it's beautifully it's done. it's funny. It's funny. It's also funny. She's funny. Fucking Bill, the great, the late great Bill Paxton. Uh, oh. One of the greatest roles in cinema is Private Hudson. Love him. Yeah. Love amazing. him. Amazing bad guy as well. Paul Reiser is Burke. Oh. And at the time, like it's fucking Paul Reiser from Mad About You. Do you know what I mean? Like it was. Well, he it was wasn't so totally cast- Mad About You at that point. As you sure, know, but, yeah. but he was. A, he was a stand-up comedian. Yeah. You know, like it's like he was so cast against type. But he's brilliant as Burke. Yeah. Evil company man. 
And you can tell because he has a suit and he wears the top part of the collar up and the bottom part of the collar down. And that's fucking weird. <laughs> it's futuristic, it's, James. I have a future shirt collar. Look he at is, me. He is a futurist. He is a futurist. Yeah. Uh, and so, so is James Cameron. Uh, good segue, Chris. Well done, everybody. That was very good. Well uh, done. Uh, but he is. Uh, Helen mentioned earlier on that he pushes the envelope um, literally. Not literally. He does. He, no, not literally. No, okay, figuratively. Okay. Figuratively, he pushes. Well, an envelope. he pushes yeah. a, an envelope full of money across yes. the table <laughs> to the effects guys and yes. says, "Do something you've never done before." Yeah, yeah. and that's impossible, ideally. Yeah. And then they do it. Yeah, yeah. And they, they've done it several times. I mean, the, the amount of breakthroughs, the amount of things that James Cameron has personally invented mm. and designed—it's insane. It's wild. Uh, Sam Worthington is entirely CG. Did you know that? that He does, right from maybe not so much the Terminator and Aliens. I mean, that's something we can can talk to him about. But certainly on the Abyss, he begins to Mm. push what CG can do with the pseudopod. Yeah, and then from that entity too, which just, Mm. I think, blew everyone's minds. And still, 31 years later continues to hold up. Yeah, it looks the, the effects on that are astonishing. Mm. I think that's because he demands the time and the money from the studios that he works with um, to get CG right. When you see, again, I'm banging the old drum, when you see bad bad CG, it's it's not enough time and not enough money, generally. It's not not enough talent, usually. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is usually that the studio has not you know, has, has had a, a release date or something locked in place and they have not been able to finish. He does not allow that kind of thing, I think, to happen. Um, and so, yeah, he, he, he pushes, he pushes, you know, effects and, and, but gets the teams that can deliver that, you know, quick enough and he gets the money to pay those teams, which is really important. So, so yeah, I mean, the, all those breakthroughs that you said, and then going on to Titanic and the sort of the subtle effects of, you know, not just the, ship sinking, which is quite a big job of effects, but also, you know, those digital doubles, also the the mist from the mouths, um, all the little touches that give that make it seem real. That's mm. where where he I think excels over over most people. And that's kind of where he he starts an awful lot as well. Like he's he he's talked about this and he may talk about it with us, but he's talked about in the past that Avatar began as a responsibility for him as the CEO of Digital Domain to find something to push the envelope for Digital Domain to do and to work on successfully. So he went away and he developed this, you know, this developed further this idea he had for donkey's years about this planet, this bioluminescent planet. And then goes, all right, guys, I guess we've got to do this now. We've got to build this completely new system of performance capture. We've got to build this completely new camera system. And he did all of that just to kind of push the effects mm. further, but never loses sight of the, the human story either, or well, the Navi story. It's about storytelling, isn't it? It's like the whole 3D thing, right? Like when Avatar came out, obviously we all knew, we'd all seen Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. We'd experienced the glory of 3D on the big screen. But like when he did it with Avatar, it's one of the reasons people went back again and again. Like you weren't just watching, you were on Pandora, you were experiencing this firsthand. And then everyone else did their stuff in 3D and fucked it. And it got to the point where any time anyone handed you a pair of the 3D glass, you were just like, oh, just die. You would die, yeah. A little part of you would die a inside. A little part of you died. Yeah. And, it's just, and they, people just ruined 
behind it because they didn't understand. They were doing it for the fact that they could charge more for the tickets. They weren't doing it because the storytelling demanded it. And they weren't doing it because Cameron at one point wanted to release Avatar exclusively in 3D with no option for 2D. He did relent. But like he felt that strongly about it because it took away that barrier and it sucked you into the film. And then when this comes out, and you'll see this in the trailer as well, it's like it's 3D, but he also plays around with high frame rate. And obviously we've seen that before when Fellowship of the Ring first came out. Was it? No, Far Hobbit, wasn't it? It was the first Hobbit film came out. That was in high frame rate and it was an abomination. And then uh, was it, what was the, it was Genesis Man, wasn't it? Genesis Man? Gemini. Gemini, Gemini Man, Man, that's it. Yes. Gemini Man. I knew it had a Professional title. here, ladies that's and gentlemen. Yeah. I know, it was a film. But that was, again, looked horrific because I don't know quite what went wrong with that, but it looked alien. Whereas when you see the trailer for this, you will see, you know, he uses high frame rate when it aids the scene, like in action. And then when it's a dialogue scene, it'll drop down to 24 frames, like, because it's not yeah, needed. Yeah. There's no point having high frame rate if two people are having a conversation. And that takes away that alien feeling that you sometimes get, not aliens feeling, that's something very different. Um, <laughs> when it doesn't feel like the grammar of cinema because we're used to that that judder that 24 frames judder when a camera the judder pans, man the judder man we're used to that and not having it makes it you almost react viscerally to it it feels weird but actually from what i've seen of this that's not going to be the case so then we'll probably now have another sort of five years everyone's going to be checking frame rates at everything 3d will be back and jim i'm sure we'll apologize for that later yeah Although I believe he's coming around to everyone's house to fix some motion smoothing on their TV. <laughs> Him and Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise. Yeah. already done that. <laughs> Cruise is going to descend from the ceiling and uh, Cameron's going to be wearing those big mech suits. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of amazing. Uh, but yeah, people have been writing them off for a long, long time. Mm. And I, I think there's been an element of that as well with this because it's been so long since the last Avatar or the first Avatar, they're both the same. Um, that some people are going, oh, has it missed its window? But also, what's with, like, there seems to be this thing where it's cool to say that Avatar wasn't a good film. Like, on what planet, don't say Pandora, was Avatar not <laughs> a good film? Like, it's a fucking brilliant film. And they said that about people, like, oh, Titanic. It's like, no, it's an amazing film. There's a reason why it made all the money in the world. Like, it's not just luck. He's an incredibly intuitive filmmaker, and he understands what makes a great film. He's never made a bad film, so... I mean, look at all the kind of, uh, there, there weren't that many knockoffs of Titanic per se. There was one called Passengers, which was, uh, I think, Titanic amongst the stars. As Titanic amongst the stars. <laughs> but in the wake of Titanic, there weren't that many knockoffs of Titanic, but a lot of films had tried to recreate the feeling of Titanic and they missed by mm. several leagues. I think, I think the, the thing about Cameron, I think, is that he has the, he has, he has a lot of confidence in himself. He may have had a long dark night with the soul or two on Titanic because mm. it was a, a horrendously difficult thing to do. But he he does know what he knows about storytelling and about character and about the basic appeal of movies. And I think he delivers that every time. And he kind of knows he's delivered that every time. So he knows he knows what he's doing and it makes all the difference, you know, all the toys in the world. And we saw that with the 3D boom. You know, you gave 3D to most people and they just like had the old arrow coming Fucked up the it. screen at you. You gave it to those Scorsese and Spielberg. They knew what they were doing with it and they used it beautifully, actually. You gave it to Cameron and he knocked it out of the park. So it's it's not just about having the toys and having the ability to use them. It's about tying those then in, as James was saying, to the story and to the emotion of the piece. Mm. Um, and that's also why, you know, frankly, he's made... I think the, a lot of the reason... To be again, to be back on my horse, but like a lot of the reason that people don't like Titanic and Avatar is that they are nakedly emotional mm. and that they are loved by women. And I think genuinely a lot of 
people uh, dismiss things that women like incels, as being you can incels. Say it, it's fine. No, no, but it's not even it's not even that. It's like I think the, the way a lot of men are, are brought up and conditioned, they are instinctively told to reject girly things, and that's that's a condition of manhood for for a way that a lot of men are raised. Like you get you get grief for like my dad used to read his sister's like chalet school books, and then literally people would laugh at him. Do you know what I mean? It's just like you get you get taught to mm. reject female-coded things as a man, and that is what makes you masculine. And um, and I, I think that's nonsense. But because Titanic and because Avatar are more openly female-coded, even though other ones have female leads, mm. I think that's why people are quicker to dismiss yeah. them, or one of the many reasons. 100%. 100%. And with Avatar, like Titanic, obviously, on a very clear level. But with Avatar, well, the love story is it's a boy meets girl love story and it is as you say nakedly emotional but it's also a love story between uh someone on a planet do you know what I mean? he's falling in profoundly in love with pandora as adrian mo once said and uh you can tell there are no older people in this room uh but uh but genuinely like he's falling in love with the the planet the place the people he's falling in love with the navi and that's what it is he's forming a bond with a people he's going native uh, and you know, going back to aliens, always, <laughs> always, always go back to aliens. Look what he did with Ripley, as well. Who in the first Alien, you know, is obviously played brilliantly by Sigourney Weaver, but just nothing really about her as a as a woman. Nothing really mm. about her as a as a you know. And we could discover that she's a mother, and he leans into that aspect of of her in in Aliens. Yeah, I think he made her into um, his own kind of heroine. But what, what's interesting is if you compare her to the Terminator. Because, you know, Sarah Connor at the beginning of The Terminator, she's Sarah literally... Connor. Thank you. She's literally <laughs> in like a fuzzy peach cardigan. Like it, it, she could not look less like an action hero. And to have her go from that to, to what we see in T2 yeah. is an incredible... And that's within his own film. So it's not like he's been handed this girly girl mm. and then and then done that with her. Like he's he's given her an arc within his own story. And I think Ripley, again, he kind of... He bases it in everything we've seen before and then just like takes her along on mm. a new on, on a new thing because she like, even in that she's not like starting out trying to you know use the mech suit to throw punches or something she's just using it to do her job you know so she's just kind of doing what she does being a n normal person in the world when she gets back from the adventure of alien and then Chekhov's you know, power loader. Chekhov's power loader. When when the situation calls for it, she she has to fire the power loader from the mantelpiece. Chekhov, I don't know, like the, that, yeah. Chekhov <laughs> yeah. gets a bit confusing. Yeah, yeah. You have to say, "Get away from her, your bitch!" In the third act, that's yeah. that's what happens. Greatest uh, moment in all of cinema. Is it? Yes. Okay, that brings me very neatly on to your favorite <laughs> James Cameron moments. <laughs> all of Aliens. <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> there must be a shot in Aliens you don't like. Oh, there isn't. Oh, well, actually, no, that's not true. So, so I, I remember I, uh, one of the interviews I did with Cameron, I asked him, like, what do you go for? Do you go for the director's cut, which you think you probably would do, or the theatrical of Aliens? Because I have real issues with this. So I love, I love the longer one because it's 17 minutes more of Aliens. But my issues with it, like, I don't like the real where Newt's parents see the ship because I think it takes some of the tension out of what you're going to find on LV-426. And I don't like the scene with the hamster because it directly repeats the scene that you get afterwards with Newt. But if you take away those, you've also got to take away the sentry guns and they're don't amazing. Don't take away the sentry guns. Uh, so it's, don't do it. Don't do it. So, so I struggle with which one to, to recommend right. to people. Okay, so favourite moment from Aliens you think is get away from her, you bitch. I mean, that's... Oh, 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 oh. No, do you know what? Do you know what? 
what? If I had to pick a moment from that, it would actually be the five meters, man, four. What the hell? That like, is that incredible. When they're, they're, it can be that's inside the room. It's read and write, man. Look, I'm going to do the whole film now. Um, but just just that moment, just the absolute naked terror of that when he just looks up and he goes, fuck. And he just lifts up the, the ceiling thing and then fall. Yeah, anyway. That film uh, is so quotable. It's incredible. In the, and in the, the motion trackers are just genius. In the early days of, uh, of Twitter, um, pre-Elon, uh, we, once at Empire, did a kind of aliens quote along. Do you remember this? And we <laughs> shared every thousands day in the of followers within about four hours because we were just quoting <laughs> aliens incessantly. A permitive. Um, they mostly come at night. Mostly. <laughs> Newt, my name's Newt. Nobody calls me Rebecca except This is just a Carrie Hen quite a lot at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's a hen night. What can I say? Anyway, come on. It's good stuff. You didn't pay for this. Hell's Bells, favourite Jim Cameron moment? Moment. Um, uh, I, I, I really like the pseudopod. In the abyss. I actually, you. I think so, so he's, he seems friendly. I also love the resuscitation scene in the abyss. Mm. Oh, um, good. such good. I love the yeah. horse in the elevator in True Lies. The horse in the elevator. Horse in the elevator. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I like the man who hits the propeller in Titanic. <laughs> 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 I'm not proud of it, but I do. Um, I like when you notice how many times they say, Jack, Jack, Rose, Jack, Rose. It's a, a just a, a lethal drinking game. I'm told I don't drink, but don't do it. If you if you drink every time they say each other's names, you will die. Yeah. Um, if you do heroin every time. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the the first flight scene in in Avatar. I yeah, think that's just that's magical. Absolutely magic. Did you leave any movies out there? I did, yeah. Some of them, yeah. Terminator? It's the it's the romantic bit. Yeah. You've, already, you've already said it. Terminator 2. Um, it's maybe the floor. Oh, that's a nice shot. I like that's a that. Great shot. Yeah, the floor shot. I just, the, uh, where he comes the thing with, with Terminator the Terminator 2 comes up behind. The thing yeah. with Terminator 2 is it has that amazing Cybidon sequence. And in any other film, that's your third act done. Like it's finished. And it's the beginning of the climax of that film. That's like the this sort of the foreplay for the actual action sequence. So you've got the freeware, then you've got steelworks. There's so much more to come. It's just amazing. So Terminator 2, which we haven't really talked about that much. It's amazing. The Amazing. second greatest sequel ever made after Aliens. After Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Just narrowly pipping Naked Gun 33 and a third. <laughs> no, it's an amazing, amazing film. And he's done it twice. He's done... Yeah. Two of the greatest sequels of all time. Mm. Jimbo will obviously say the two greatest sequels they of are. all time. Yes. I, mean, I am telling The Empire Strikes Back on you, but okay. That's fine. Uh, well, I'm telling Evil Dead 2 on both of you. I will uh, die on this hill. What can I say? But yeah, it's such an incredible film. But this is his third sequel. Mm. So... What do we think? Can he do it again? Fingers crossed. I mean, I think um, there were a few months ago they 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 showed a little bit of footage and it was extremely exciting. So I'm I'm hyped. Can't wait for next week. Mm. I mean, look, like I say, he has made the two greatest sequels of all time, and this is another sequel. So I would say that it bodes very very well. Excellent. Well, listen, my favorite James Cameron moment is all of them. <laughs> Let <There you> go. <laughs> teacher's pet. Teacher's pet. I brought an apple for James Cameron. All right. Well, listen, I believe the man himself is in the building. So we're going to get the, uh, the In Conversation with James Cameron part of the In Conversation with James Cameron evening underway. All that remains for me to say, thank you and fuck off. James Dyer <laughs> and Helen O'Hara. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the main event? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Will you please welcome the director of The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, True Lies, Titanic, Avatar, now Avatar, The Way of Water, the legendary James Cameron! Thank you, Chris. Hello, sir. Welcome. Welcome. Oh, Jim. So you guys are all sugared up on junk food. That's great. <laughs> Good. They all have they all have weirdly a bar of chocolate each. Is this is this true? Green and blacks. You ever had green and blacks? Everyone eat your chocolate now. <laughs> we'll get our sugar rush in about twenty minutes, and it's then this will get thing. lively. Oh yeah, it's going to get real lively. I mean, uh, we were just chatting about your films. We were talking about you behind your back uh, earlier on when you weren't here, and uh, and James James Dyer there, who was on set of Avatar uh, for a couple of days, uh, he was saying to me that uh, and everyone else that you had at one point you had on set a razor blade with use a film sucks. Yeah, it was actually on the on the screen of my Abbott in the cutting room, and it was actually on Titanic, and you know we, we just all thought we were doomed. Our careers were over Hollywood had the long knives out uh-huh. waiting for this big stinko pile that was coming you know <laughs> that they'd all heard about and it was like wildly over budget and, and could not but suck you know <laughs> that was the only choice and uh, so I literally had a razor blade there it said using case film sucks <laughs> so that every day I would realize what the stakes were yeah that's actually, that's actually a true story. That's amazing. And then finally, somebody actually saw the movie. <laughs> I was like, uh, wait. <laughs> I realized what they had. Yeah. Did you have anything like that on, on Avatar? Because the stakes were equally out there. On yeah, that one. the difference was toward the end on Avatar, we kind of knew what we had because we were starting to see it all coming together in 3D. Uh, but the, weirdly, the some of the executives at 20th Century Fox didn't believe in the movie even when they saw it finished. It's like they couldn't get seeing everybody in their black tights with their marker dots out of their heads. They just couldn't not see that earlier, earliest screening. And mm. they just they just thought it sucked. And I'm talking about the finished movie that you all know. <laughs> and they wouldn't even put a billboard up in front of the studio. They had Alvin and the Chipmunks 2, <laughs> the squeakquel. <laughs> Instead of Avatar out, you know, in front of 20th Century Fox when you <laughs> when you drove down Pico Boulevard, it was like so nuts. Well, as we all know, Alvin and the Chipmunks too, the squeakquel became the biggest film of all time. I'll so never, I'll never forget it. Never forget <laughs> it. Um, I want to take you back to the beginning, not the very beginning, because I think even you might not remember the very beginning. But I want to take you back to really the beginning of, of Avatar. So you're 19, but oh, your yeah. mind is older. That's really the beginning. Yeah. It pops into your head in a, in a dream almost, doesn't it? Right. So look, I mean, everybody dreams differently. Some people don't remember their dreams, but I've got like a full tilt streaming service that, that's running all night long, right? And sometimes I get up and write down little bits of stories and stuff. And I remember one in particular. So I'm, I'm 19, I'm in college, and I have this dream with bioluminescent trees and, and purple moss on the ground. You step on it and it kind of glows and there's a glowing river. The trees kind of look like uh, fiber optic lamps, which mm-hmm. is a look that we preserved into the actual film. And I, I remembered it so vividly that I actually got up and, and I used to draw in in um, oil pastels for color, right? Okay, yeah. So I drew a sketch of the, of the trees and the moss and the little spinning lizards, the little orange spinning lizards. It was all there. 
you know, uh, but it was just an image or a setting, if you will. Right. And then, so years later I was thinking of, of, uh, a cool planet, you know, as part of a story I was writing with a friend of mine, a screenplay for a film we never made called Xenogenesis. And yeah. I, so we had the bioluminescent world. And then years later after that, I was the CEO of digital domain, which was, uh, the first all digital visual effects company. And I wanted to do something that would kind of, um, you know, elevate us in, in the development of CG characters and creatures and all that sort of thing. So I dusted off some of my old ideas and I wrote this thing called Avatar. And they all told me I was bonkers, that it, <laughs> it, it couldn't be done. And they were right at that time. But I figured it was only a matter of time before the, the CG kind of you know, the tide of CG rose and the capability across the whole industry improved enough. And then that, that so cut from 95 when that was written to 05. Mm. And, you know, I, I was developing uh, Alita Battle Angel mm. and I wasn't liking the scripts. And we, we set down the path to write one last script, one last try, script five. And I thought, man, this is, you know, maybe we don't crack the code on this. Um, so I pulled Avatar out from the back of the drawer and I read it. And I went, mm, it's not a bad story. Maybe we should develop that too. And I was thinking sort of the performance capture stuff could use it for Battle Angel, could use it for Avatar. So we just started developing performance capture, the technique for how to capture the faces. And so we did, that went along for a few months. And then we, we planned a huge test where we were just going to bring all of our tech together and try to figure out how to do facial capture, body capture, everything. And uh, I didn't have a scene. I looked at, I looked through Battle Angel. In the meantime, I got a pretty good script in for Battle Angel. I was like, okay, we can make that or we can make Avatar. And it was kind of a coin toss, but I was looking for a, a scene that had all CG characters. And if you ever saw Battle Angel Alita, it's mostly her in a scene with live action people or one of the other big cyborgs in a scene with live action people. There weren't, mm -hmm. there weren't any dialogue scenes that were, that were CG to CG character. Um, but there was one in Avatar when Jake first meets Neytiri. So I just quickly wrote up that scene in a couple of days and that was our test. And then we never looked back. We just kept going forward on Avatar. And at a certain point, we noticed we were actually just making Avatar. Um, <laughs> but it really was kind of a coin toss. And then, I, you know, Robert Rodriguez wound up taking over for me to make, to make uh, Battle Angel Alita while I was, you know, doing, doing this film. Well, one of the, uh, the things about Avatar and its success was the way that people felt transported to Pandora. Right. You know, we've talked about this in the past a little bit, about how people felt that they actually wanted to go to Pandora. And, you know, well, and you live. saw the film, the new film. Did you mm -hmm. feel that sense of transport? I did, I did indeed. Uh, spoiler alert, everybody. But yeah, but yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the water is just, you know, I can't talk about it too much, but yeah, the, the, the scenes with the water is just beautiful. It's transportational. You just want to go there. Um, and that is something that, and then a lot of really bad stuff happens. And then a lot of, really, yeah, a lot of a lot of bad stuff happens to uh, to to, to uh, well, I'm not going to say anyway. But but in terms of how Avatar was transportational for you, at what point you, you you said there was a point where you realized we're just making Avatar. Was there a point when you realized, okay, I want to make Avatar two, three, four, five, and on 
Yeah, it, was, it wasn't the kind of no-brainer you might expect, right? So you make this high-grossing film and then, okay, let's make another one, right? But the way I looked at it was, you know, lightning just struck. This might be the only time this ever happens. And, and do I really want to tempt the cinema gods and say, okay, do it again, right? I also had other things to do, frankly. I really liked deep ocean exploration. After Titanic, I took eight years off to do expeditions mm. and had the time of my life. And then I kind of crawled back to filmmaking, you know, make a little more money so I could do some more expeditions basically. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Avatar worked out. So then I, you know, took a couple of years and, and we built a sub and, and went to the deepest places in the, in the world, uh, some of the deep trenches. And that was all, you know, really keen. And then, um, I thought, do I really want to do another Avatar film? You know, it's a gigantic risk. It's really expensive. Maybe it doesn't work as well the next time. I, I didn't even know there was a pandemic coming, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought about it. And then I thought, all right, look, we can do a lot of good with this film. It's, it's good to, you know, attract attention to the plight of indigenous people around the world that are who's you know, native lands are being encroached upon and their cultures destroyed and all that. And, and since I wanted to set it in the ocean, I can deal with one of my most important subjects, which is sustainability and conservation of the oceans and mm -hmm. all that. So we can do some good here. Um, and plus I just, I just really like my team. You know, I had this great team. I had this great family of actors uh, and not just the actors you guys know from the movie, but the troop players, the ones that are the kind of unsung heroes that are playing all the other people in the movie. So if you see a crowd of 100 people, it's not 100 people. It's like 10 people 10 times. So, you know, like there are a couple of our troop players on, on The Way of Water that I think have played 22 characters. Wow. You know? And because they just really know performance capture, they know how it's done. They're just, you know, they're just solid experienced people. So we had this kind of avatar family and that attracted me as well. It's like, okay, well, let's not make just one more film. Let's make three more films. And then anything we develop, any money that we spend to improve the technology makes sense because we can amortize it over multiple films. Mm. Right. Mm. So there were some, you know, it was kind of a business strategy as well but you have to succeed with the first one i don't consider avatar the start of a franchise if we're successful with the way of water that'll be the start of the franchise because then it's set up to have a proper cadence between releases you know much has been made of oh we don't even remember the names of the characters it had no cultural impact blah 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 <laughs> yeah sure compared to you know, Iron Man 2 comes out two years after Iron Man 1, and then there's the Avengers, and then boom, boom, boom. I'm not not dissing them. I'm just saying that it is different, yeah. you know. And by the way, different directors on a lot of those films too. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to have that kind of cadence to stay in the conversation, stay in the zeitgeist, I've got to get it all teed up ahead of time. i got to get all my front-end work, all the scripts done, all the design stuff done, so that all we're really doing is post-production, 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 because we're about two years just in post. That doesn't include writing, design, actually shooting it, actually working with the actors and all that stuff. So it was sort of like a very big startup torque mm -hmm. to get it launched again, which we will or we won't, you know, based on market forces and are there still enough theaters after the pandemic and all that stuff. But if mm. we get it launched, then 
three, then four, then five. It's all teed up. You see what I mean? So it made a lot of sense right up until the pandemic came along. And then it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because um, I don't think people remember the names of the lead characters in Alvin and the Chipmunks too, the Squeakwell either. <laughs> Probably maybe Alvin and All right. uh, anybody. Yeah, well, it's, I've got that to cling to now, that. don't I? <laughs> yeah, <No>. absolutely. <laughs> but it, going back to when you first had this idea, so it wasn't necessarily that you you had this image, you had this image when you were 19. And your entire career was in service of making that image. No, into no, a film. no, no. I mean, I had, I remembered it years later. I actually dug the sketch out, um, and it saved us. We got we got sued by eleven people that apparently <laughs> thought I had somehow, you know, used telepathy or something. And these are people that wear tinfoil on their heads. You know what I mean? Who thought that I had somehow stolen the idea from them? And you know, I whipped out this drawing that was you know dated in you know nineteen seventy two or whatever it was. And uh, oh, by the way, there was another one of a guy in a giant rainforest wearing a spacesuit that I drew in the eleventh grade, and it was literally signed, you know. Jim Cameron, 11C, you know, <laughs> dated. And I said, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this stuff for a while and I didn't frankly need your dumbass idea in order to make this movie. <laughs> and, you know, 11 out of 11 lawsuits went away very promptly when they saw all the drawings. Amazing. Uh, so just to go back to your, your career and how you, you began, really, because um, you, you, you get your, I'm, I'm fascinated by your, your origin story, so to speak, uh, which you know, you've talked about, but the, uh, the idea that you're driving a truck. Where were you driving the truck, Jim? I've always wanted to know. Okay, so it's, uh, I'm living in Orange County in, you know, near Los Angeles and um, working for a school district, and I'm, I'm driving a truck that brings the hot lunches to all the schools. So the little kitties, you know, kind of SpaghettiOs, I, you know. And the way I drove, I mean, about half of it stayed on the tray, basically. <laughs> and I, I feel bad for those little kids now. They were probably all undernourished during the year, a couple of years that I was delivering their lunches. This is scurvy outbreak, and it's yeah, all your right, fault. Yeah, right, exactly. And so, at this point, you're teaching yourself how to make films. Yeah, so, I mean, that was my day gig. And then, and then you know, I was trying to learn as much as I could about, about visual effects and production design and all that sort of thing. And what I do is, on Saturdays, I drive into the city uh, to USC, and they have a library there that they kind of call the stacks, right? Where they keep, you know, not only the books, but all the papers written by all their, their, you know, graduate students and so on. And, and I just went in and I, I studied optical printing and, you know, photogrammetry and the, you know, various film stocks and emulsions and really the science of making movies. And I'd find this stuff and anything that interested me, I'd just, I'd just photocopy it. And I'd put it into these big binders and I learned all the different techniques for visual effects, you know, rear projection, front projection, camera movements, uh, bipack, you know, sodium process, all the different ways of doing traveling matte photography and blah, 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 everything. I just gave myself, you know, a college level class mm. in visual effects for the cost of the Xeroxing, basically. <laughs> and... Uh, Seems kind of obvious, like, why wouldn't you do that, you know? And at the same time, I was screwing around with my friends writing scripts and learning kind of script formatting and all that sort of thing. So I was, you know, I was, uh, I was training myself for when the opportunity arose. And when it did arise, you know, I always say, you know, fortune favors the prepared mind. I just leaped into it. And I actually had some skills. 
they were hypothetical, but I didn't tell them that. <laughs> you know. So tell me about that opportunity. Well, it was it was uh, Roger Corman had decided. Well, they made a lot of money with Star Wars. I want to jump in on that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, he decided he was going to spend all of a million dollars on his own version of Star Wars, which was called Battle Beyond the Stars. Love that film. And uh, I got hired on that in the miniature department, but then I, I quickly kind of uh, ran a mock, and uh, <laughs> you know, and and wound up replacing the production designer on live action. Because this guy, he had like 21 sets to build and he had like one built and, and they were going to start shooting in three weeks. So he he just, he, I guess he brain locked or something, you know, so they threw me in. I guess I was the the one guy dumb enough to put his hand up. And um, so then I think I got, you know, probably two hours sleep for about a month. <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. And I didn't do drugs. So it was like a lot of coffee. <laughs> uh, it came in on my first day as this is to tell you a lot about the time period, right? So this was uh, 1981. I came on my in my first day on the production designer gig, and they said, "Okay, here's your petty cash voucher, and here's your crew list for your day shift and your night swing carpenter group and everything. Um, here's your coke. Here's your black beauties." <laughs> and you just, I'm like, "What? And yeah, you just give it to the crew." And I'm, it's like all of a sudden I'm like a dealer, you know? And like people are coming to me for I'm like. What? This is part of the gig. Like, wow. Different what it was like back then. Different time. Different, different time. times. Different yeah. times. Hopes. Uh, yeah. That's wild. So, so all the time, but you're still, you're writing scripts. You're yeah. pursuing directing. Yeah. So how, how do you get to, to knock that? Okay. So I go down? through that whole Corman process. We make a couple of films. We did that and we did Galaxy of Terror. And, you know, I sort of learned all the low budget tricks and, you know, was actually on sets, you know, and, and on Galaxy of Terror, the, the director was screwing up so badly that Roger started looking around for a second unit director to sort of like get some stuff done on the sets before they ran out of time and money. And so I put my hand up and said, I can do that. And he says, well, what about, what about production designing? And I took a big chance. I said, my art director can take over for me. I've got everything designed. Now, Roger could have said, well, then I don't need you anymore, mm. but he didn't. He said, I need a second unit director. So hand it off to the, to the art director and start tomorrow. And he gave me like pages, like 10 pages of the script, the script with the actors I'm like, this is not second unit. This is alt first unit, right? I got to work with actors. What? <laughs> you know, but then, you know, it turned out that because of, you know, I have a writer's mentality, I kind of got into the characters and I, I just realized that you just tell actors what the character's thinking. Pretty okay. damn easy yeah. once you get into it. But I was terrified, of course. But apparently I did okay. And then uh, I got, I got, uh, recruited to do this film called Piranha 2, The Spawning, by these whack job producers from <laughs> Europe, and uh, <laughs> who took, took me to lunch at, at Zucky's, which was a restaurant in, in Santa Monica. I think they probably dropped a good 10 bucks on that lunch <laughs> and uh, signed me up, you know. And it turned out it was a scam because there was this this kind of crazy Italian producer and he had an output deal with Warner Brothers that was a negative pickup, which means he'd fund the movie and then they'd pay him for the, for the negative cost, right? But he had, he, he had this deal, it was a revolving deal and he'd already made a couple films for them. 
And this was the third time he was going to run the, run the same scam because his contract said he had to have an American director. He was Italian and they didn't want a set that sense, that sensibility. They wanted somebody that, you know, was English as a first language sort of yeah. thing because they were going to put it out in the U S and so what the guy would do is he'd hire an American director and then fire him after a couple of days and take over. And he'd save all the scenes with the topless women for the latter part of the shoot. I, I'm, you can't make this shit up. Wow. Right. So he hired me and I was going to be like the third fall guy in, in the series. He's already, already done this twice. Um, and, you know, sure enough, I'm three days into the shoot and I get tapped on the shoulder, you know, kid, you're out. And he takes over. Maybe it was more like four days or something like that. And he had all these bullshit reasons like, oh, you, you know, you're spending too much time doing setups and, you know, all that sort of thing. And your stuff won't cut. But he wouldn't show me any of the footage. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I got the boot. And then he took over. But then Warner Brothers busted him. They said, yeah, we're getting hip to your tricks here. You're <laughs> violating your contract. And they wouldn't take the picture. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the joke was sort of on him eventually. But unfortunately, I got saddled with this first credit that was kind of bullshit. Uh, so then I realized, you know, this is sink or swim time. I better come up with something good. And that's when I wrote The Terminator. I was actually in Rome on that film when I came up with the idea for The Terminator. And it was another one of these dream things, right? Mm -hmm. Where I got this image in my head in a dream of this chrome skeleton. And I don't know, like, how it is for, for you guys when you dream, but for me, it's not just an image. There's almost like a, a kind of a, a narrative, um, you know, metadata that kind of runs with the image that says this thing used to have skin on it, but the fire burned the skin off and therefore it now looks like a skeleton, right? So it wasn't just an image, it was story or, or a story element, right? So I woke up, started sketching that, wrote, wrote it down, and then that became the nucleus of the whole story. And then it was like, okay, how did he get here? Is he from space? Is, you know, in the future, pretty obvious, right? Because we don't have that kind of technology now. Mm -hmm. And I had to make a film. If you think about it, it's all dead simple. I didn't, <laughs> well, I didn't have the money to do a futuristic movie. I had to shoot it on the streets of Los Angeles on a shoestring, right? So now it's futuristic technology we don't have now, and but I got to shoot it now in contemporary setting, Oh, it must be time travel. Okay, time travel. So what? we don't want to see it. How about just a bright flash and he shows up, right? <laughs> no, seriously, it's yeah. it's kind of that reductive, yeah, yeah. right? Um, so anyway, and then that turned into the Terminator and we spent $4 million on that below the line, which was probably about our catering budget on, on <laughs> the way of water, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Arnold got the rest <laughs> pretty much. I love that I'm talking to someone who can end stories with, and anyway, that turned into the Terminator, uh, which, yeah, right. is, <laughs> which yeah. is amazing. But you know, going back to the the directing actors thing and how you started off, I mean, I've I talked to Guillermo del Toro once, who said that he felt it was incredibly important to uh, take acting classes and take acting lessons to see what the what the actors are feeling, what they're going through. Yeah, did you ever do that? I think that would be wise, but I never did it. Okay. Um, but uh, there is a lot of acting and directing, you know, because when somebody gives you an idea, you go, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, and you gotta, you gotta sell it. You, you gotta stick the landing on that one. You know, you can't ever be insincere. Let me think about that one for a second. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, 
No, but look, I, I, I think I found out that speaking, you know, always sort of from a writer's standpoint, knowing what the actors, I mean, what the characters are thinking and feeling in any given moment. I just found out, you know, pretty quickly that I could talk to actors, that what I said made sense to them. It took me a while to evolve that to the point where I limited what I said to them just to that which was actable in the moment, mm. you know, as opposed to too much backstory and too much of, hey, what you're doing now is setting the seed for what's going to happen later in the movie. That's not actable. They need to know what to do right now. Well, what am I doing in this scene? What's the, what's the truth of this scene? Mm. It took me a while to kind of figure out to say less, you know. But I, I, a big lesson for me on the Terminator, um, you know, was that, you know, I had a couple of actors that I really respected just from the work that I'd seen them do. And I thought, oh, well, they'll know what to do. They're really, really good actors. It's like, no, they didn't necessarily know what to do. They, it's very hard sometimes for actors to be objective about what, what they're doing. And they want to hear from the outside, you know, it's not insecurity. It's just when they're immersed, they're putting something out. They want to hear that it's the right thing, that it fits the movie, mm. that there's somebody somewhere that's going to put all the pieces together, mm. you know, and that what they're doing is, is right. Now, there are a lot of actors that sort of take control of that eventually, maybe even become directors themselves, uh, and they don't need that kind of input. But I, it was kind of a shock to me that, like, really, really accomplished actors needed a director in the, in the moment, in real time, um, you know, so you got to find you got to find your level with every actor and they and and you'll have a bunch of different actors and they'll need something different from you maybe some of them like you to just jump in while the while the camera's running or do a quick reset and just pop the line again or hey just give me that line again mm. you know or they'll 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 know that the line didn't didn't hit quite the way it should it's just and I'll just I'll just interject while the camera's rolling and just give me that again just do you know other actors want you to stay the hell out of the way, let them do their thing, you know? Um, and that's cool too, yeah. you know, and then regroup and talk about it after the, after the take. Some actors like to be at the monitor and see what they did. Um, others don't want to know. They don't want to know. It's like you happy boss. I'm happy. All right, let's go, <laughs> you know, seriously. So it's a different relationship with, with every actor and you gotta, you gotta kind of find that. And that's where experience comes in. What about someone like Arnold, who you've obviously worked with a, a number of times? And you well, I was terrified of Arnold, you know, when he when he showed up, and I found out that, you know, I, I said, "Are right, you okay doing another take on this?" And he said, "It's just reps." <laughs> That's what he said. He said you get better, you do more reps, you get better. Yeah. You know, he and I actually hit it off pretty early after the first like you know day of terror. <laughs> you know was he scared of you if you just did I that doubt all. it <laughs> I don't think Arnold's really afraid of anybody and I don't mean like just because he's physically big I just yeah. think he's just he's just got you know ridiculous amounts of confidence and it's just a way as well that you know, looking at the work you've done with Arnold and obviously you work with a lot of actors a lot over the years you know going on the Terminator alone you know Linda Hamilton Michael yeah, Bean Lance Michael. Henderson Bill Paxton you right. know work with him again and again but the way Arnold evolve from T1 to T2 and then in True Lies where he's doing yeah. something completely different as well. Well, that's a whole thing. I mean, you know, Arnold and I hit it off. He trusted me uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he just believed in the projects is really what it was. He actually didn't believe in T2 initially, 
is I wrote the script. We got on a plane to Cannes together to go sell T2 at the Cannes Festival when we were both, you know, we were working for Carol Co. at that time. And I gave him the script. He read it on the plane. We got together for a breakfast meeting in, in Cannes. And he had this really troubled look on his face. And I said, what? He goes, Jim, I don't kill anybody. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. It's great. They'll never see that coming. Isn't that cool? He's like, but Jim, I'm the Terminator. <laughs> I'm the guy that kicks the door in and just machine guns everybody. It's what I do. It's like, I, I, I know, but this is like different. They won't see it coming. It's a big surprise. Uh, I don't know. He said, <laughs> you know, I, so I, I spent like an hour talking him into it, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, I'm, I'm a, you know, we're paying the check. I'm about to get up. And he goes, oh, wait. Before John Connor shows up and tells me I can't kill anybody, I kill people then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, you got me there, you know, uh, except no. Yeah. Because if you're the hero, you're the hero. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And okay. And I think that's actually the moment where, where it, where I really earned his trust because he didn't believe in what I had written, but he did it anyway. Mm. And it worked out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. When he saw it, when he saw how it was working. You know, it's not like he had to go to the premiere to see that it was working. You know, he, he saw it as we went along, started to click for him, you know, that this is really cool. And, and, and it, was, it was cool to see him in that heroic role, but with all that sort of innate badassery that he had from the first movie. It actually worked out pretty well. And, yeah. and both the Terminator films, and in fact, a lot of your movies, um, you know, are, are about the dangers of technology. And right. this is something that's been very much on your mind. I mean, it's obviously writ large well, in both it's, avatars. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dualism, right? Because it's, you know, it's a love-hate relationship with technology. And I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot, if not most of the ills of humanity and what we inflict on each other and on the world come from our mastery of technology. Everything gets weaponized eventually. Um and yet, every, you know, a lot of everything that we've achieved and a lot of what's great about us, our deeper understanding of the natural world through science and things like that is all part of technology, all as a result of technology. So I'm pretty ambivalent about technology. And I think that it's a, but it's a strong ambivalence, if you know what I mean. I show both, you know. <laughs> well, you know, Sigourney yeah. kicks the alien queen's ass with a, with a power loader. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if that wasn't there, she wouldn't stand much of a chance. That's true. Very true. But this is something that's been on your mind right from the off, maybe even Absolutely. from the 70s. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, it's you know, I think I'm pretty thematically consistent about that. Even Titanic, even though it's not a science fiction film, is still about our relationship with technology. You know, the Titanic was this grand machine. It was representative of a time when people thought everything was going to be progress. Everything was going to get better as a result of our mastery of steel. And our ability to control energy, you know, through steam power and things mm. like that. And then it all went pear-shaped. Mm. And that was right before World War I. And, and we saw what mechanized warfare did to people. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, and the 20th century was all about, you know, the technology turning on us, you know, the dragon biting, biting back. Was that something that informed aliens to an extent for you as well? Well, sure. So you've got this, you know, this highly, uh, you know, mechanized force, you know, with their advanced weaponry coming in and fighting something that had no technology whatsoever. 
and beat them. So in my mind, at that time, that was a metaphor for the Vietnam War, where the, the Viet Cong were using sharpened bamboo sticks and, and, and you know, kind of uh, hand-me-down, you know, Soviet Kalashnikovs against gunships, uh, you know, helicopters, arc light bombers, you know, B-52s and all that stuff. And they, and they won, you know. So to me, it was a metaphor about hubris and putting too much of your faith in technology and the assumption of superiority. Before you come in, we, when we were talking about you behind your back, uh, we were talking about our favorite uh, Jim Cameron moments. And uh, Get Away From Her, You Bitch was, was very, very high on the list. It's up there on my list. It's, it's a hell of a moment. And um, the last time I spoke to you was with Edgar Wright. I, was, I, I did the interview with you and Edgar for uh-huh. the magazine about a year and a half ago. And you were talking about that scene. And what you said fascinated me. You were talking about how you kept the audience in mind all the way through the pacing of that yeah. shot. Yeah. From the moment Ripley appears in the power loader. Can right. you talk about how the, you paced that? The door that? goes up. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that scene for a second because that's a classic example of what screenwriters call plant payoff. You set it up early and you forget about it. And then you pay it off when you need it. Right? So it's classic plant payoff. And you don't see it coming. You sort of do because I do these inserts where she's doing something and maybe that triggers a memory. Maybe it doesn't. Kind of had my cake and eat it too. Yeah. You know, because I show her get putting the thing on, but it's all done in these abstract cuts. Um, but then you've got the door going up, which is the reveal. And the reveal, you know, it's interesting because you kind of clap at the reveal, but it hasn't you haven't really stuck the landing yet, right? Mm-hmm. And then she clops forward right up into a close-up and then drops the line. And the audience went, ape shit. <laughs> At the premiere, it's, it's, I mean, it was overwhelming, you know, far beyond my expectations. I mean, I knew the line worked, right? Yeah. But to see, you know, so it's a premiere in Westwood in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and this is in 1986, July of 86. And Hollywood comes out, to either hate you or celebrate you. <laughs> now they come out to assassinate you, but if you can win them, yeah. they will celebrate because it's cinema, right? They'll celebrate it. And they went ape shit. And th- these are like studio people and agents and, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, that was a very fulfilling moment. I didn't have anything like that on Terminator because we didn't have a premiere and they were too cheap. <laughs> seriously they were too cheap to have a premiere you know i'd sneak into a theater and i'd see people kind of laughing or cheering or whatever but but this was different you know and um you know it's it's great when you propose an idea and it actually works and and sigourney just sold it like crazy and sigourney was there right and she the funny thing is you know everything's a bit of a revision with everybody always but sigourney didn't really like the movie at first because there was too too much you know gunfire and stuff like that and mm-hmm. she was she was basically you know anti anti gun you know uh you know very kind of liberal stance and i i agree with her 100 percent. but it was aliens she read the script you're gonna hose the you know gonna hose the <laughs> eggs with a flamethrower and a machine gun sorry it, i'm not changing not changing that you know so she was kind of like Meh. you know and then that moment happened and she was like they like me. <laughs> they like me in this character. And she didn't even know if that was a good thing at that point, but she came around. That's amazing. So in your mind, when you were editing that moment and shooting that moment and pacing that moment, 
Were you thinking about audience reaction? Like the minute she appears, the audience getting excited, leaving a gap for the line. Was that something you were thinking about? I think when you're directing a movie, you're sort of making it for yourself, but you got to carry an audience around in your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, there are various theories, theory of mind, uh, kind of mirror, mirror neuron concept where you kind of run a simulation of what the other person you're with thinks if you know them, right? If you know a person well, you have a little simulation you can run of what they're going to think about what you're about to say. Mm. And you can know if it's something that they'll like or something that will push their buttons and piss them off or whatever it is. And we do that. We do that with each other. And we do it even with strangers based on an expectation of what that person might think. And we do it all the time, right? What a director has to do it for not a person, but hundreds of people in a kind of generic audience simulation, right? Uh, and it's not as simple as just making it work for you. You have to be savvy enough to know what a, what a, more people in an audience might think. And I think it's one of the hardest things about making a movie, and, and part and parcel of that is now you're watching, you've watched your movie in pieces, and you're putting it together, and, and you, you see the film over and over and over again, but you still have to see it for the first time. And mm -hmm. a movie like this, five years of production, and I've over five years, I've seen every shot at fractal microscopic detail mm -hmm. and every shot, you know, more or less completed thousands of times and the whole cut of scenes, you know, hundreds of times. And how do you stay objective? How do you still have that fresh audience in your mind that's seeing it for the first time? It's a hard thing to do. It's a discipline mm -hmm. and ultimately it becomes impossible. Ultimately, it becomes impossible to really know what people are going to think until yeah. you put it in front of them and get a reaction, which literally just happened over the last couple of days. So, have you been able to test the way of water at all? Did you did you test Avatar? We did. We did some early tests, um, and we learned a lot from that about what was working and what wasn't working. And then you use that to modify your cut and you emphasize certain things, and maybe even a couple of problems emerge that you have to do something about, which we had. Um, that's part of the process as well. But you really don't know how an audience is going to react to the finished, finished, finished film until you go to a screening. So you were at one of the first screenings. I think you were probably at the third screening where we actually showed it to people. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the response seems to be pretty good so far. So hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so but going into this, going into The Way of Water, you know, having directed two of the greatest sequels of all time, what lessons did you bring into that from aliens and T2. Well, they're, they're general cause you're never going to solve this, you know, a, a different problem the same way you've solved another problem in the past. But the idea of a sequel in general, um, you want to be true to what the audience loves and expects. But on the other hand, you want to smack them upside the head and say, we're doing this instead. <laughs> and what the, this is better be at least as good as <laughs> as what they expected because yeah, yeah. surprise is great unless it's a negative surprise right yeah, yeah so it has to be positive surprise and so you know it's 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 a question of how much can you turn it around you know i mean making arnold the good guy you, we we play around with this expe expectation that he's there to assassinate john as well maybe the other guy's there to to help him and then it turns out to be the other way around. 
Now we kind of gave that away in the in the uh, marketing materials in the trailer and stuff. We kind of gave away that he was going to be the good guy. So, but I think people can even go along with ideas where they're not supposed to know, but they already do. But you kind of play the game with a movie, you know. Sometimes, so I think they were willing to 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 sort of play that game, even though they'd seen the trailer where Arnold's the good guy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a weird kind of duality of like, well, okay, I know, I know what they're doing, but I can admire the way they do it Yeah, where I'm not supposed to know, but I do anyway, you know. If you had your time again, would you uh, hide the fact that Arnold was the good no. guy in the marketing? No, I, no. I believe, I believe in that marketing campaign because rule one is you got to get people to show up and you got to do something that's, that's on its face intriguing enough to get them to want to, to want to come to see it. So I don't think, I don't think much was lost with that being a reveal at the end of act one. It's not like it was the sixth sense and we blew the, we, <laughs> you know, we blew the big reveal, you know, in the trailer. And, uh, and with this movie, did you have marketing in mind as you're, as you're developing it? Is there a moment where you, you know, I think less so. Okay. I think I was, tr I was dealing more kind of organically with the story of Jake and Natiri going forward and becoming parents and I think I knew that this film was going to be surprising to people. Like you, you guys haven't seen the film yet, right? So you're going off trailer materials and some images in the lobby and all that. And, you know, it looks cool and all that. And it kind of looks like a brochure for Bora Bora, right? <laughs> it is so not that. But I can't really, you know, I can't really describe where it goes because it's all about getting in the heads of the characters and then going through their journey with them and, and feeling the, the fear and the loss and the grief and all the bad shit that happens in this movie and coming out the other side of that in a kind of epiphanal state. I mean, I'm describing yeah. the movie yeah. that you saw, right? Yes. Okay. And in fairness, so, I signed the most terrifying NDA I have... <laughs> I have ever signed. So uh, all I'm saying is I'll agree with this gentleman <laughs> entirely. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, I, I think it was a little bit more of an organic process. I wasn't thinking backwards from a marketing hook. So now we're in post-production and we're like, okay, well, what's the hook? You know, we're talking to Disney. We're talking to their, you know, marketing people. And it's like, family. Okay, great. So then a whole bunch of trailers came in that were about family, about Jake and Natiri. I said, wait a minute. Jake and Natiri aged people don't go to the movies anymore. We need 18-year-olds. An 18-year-old doesn't want to hear about family from the parent's point of view. Trust me on this. <laughs> right? So then we thought, oh, well, we got to tell the kid's story yeah. too. You know, And it turned out that there was actually a balance to be found there. People wanted to feel like the story continued with, with Jake and Natieri, but they also wanted to see new things. Yeah. And I think the trailer does does promise that. The series of trailers promise that. Without giving too much away in case someone shoots me with a, with a gun, but there, there are... They'll shoot you with a lawyer. <laughs> shoot you with a lawyer. <laughs> there are things, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, Jim, but there are scenes and sequences in this, the complexity of it, the, it is astonishing. It blew my mind. I mean, was this... A bigger movie, a bigger production than the first Avatar for you? There's an interesting thing going on here. Okay, so the film is longer. Uh -huh. um, people wanted the first film to be longer. It's like, be careful what you ask for. We can, <laughs> that I can do, right? Um, it's longer because there's more. there are more characters to service and there's more complexity in the story, which I think is actually a good thing, uh, personally, for this film. Um, 
you know, I think that what we set out to do was make you drop you back into Pandora very quickly, get you into Jake and Nateri's lives. Let Jake take you through the 15 years that's in between the, the first film and the second one. Take you through having kids, being a father, you know, their life. None of the humans come back and it all goes to hell. And then we, then we, we cut to a year later and they're at war again. And then ultimately it becomes a kind of a refugee story where they're displaced from the forest and they have to go, they have to go to the ocean. But I think the, where the surprises really start is when we start to follow the kids and we just kind of go off of Jake and Ateria for a while and we follow the kids. And then all of a sudden that story is, is as compelling as Jake and Ateria's story. And that was by design. It's not really about handing off the baton so much as introducing new characters and new complexity into it, right? Because Jake and Atiri are through the whole saga as it's all written out. Four is written, five is written. These are shootable scripts. They may be, be tinkered with a bit, but I consider them shooting scripts. Um, and they're, they're right through the whole saga right to the end. But, you know, we wanted to, to, to play uh, the epic game. And in, in epics, there are more characters and there are more threads to follow. But here's the interesting thing. The first movie follows a classic, if you guys know, the, kind of the Joseph Campbell archetypes of, of, of mythic storytelling. It follows that actually fairly clearly. Second movie doesn't at all. Doesn't at all. It's kind of a, an intimate epic. You know, in the first movie, you've got giant armies being raised and, 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 massive clash of forces, good versus evil at the end and all that kind of stuff. And Jake emerges as the, as the, the, the mytho heroic character on the, on the orange, you know, creature and all that. That's not what happens in the second movie. Second movie, quite frankly, it's like a slow Tuesday afternoon and a bunch of shit goes down. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, he doesn't go out and raise any army, um, <laughs> but it still feels epic. Right, but it's a more intimate epic, more closely focused on the characters and the bonds between the family members and and all that. I don't think I'm spoiling anything no. there. You're going to have to see how that plays out. And by the way, Titanic sinks. You know that going in <laughs> doesn't doesn't ruin your appreciation of the of the film. So it it kind of plays by different rules, and I think that's okay. But it's scary, right? So you're you're doing a movie at the at the highest budget level there is. And there's so much pressure just from kind of industry standards, not from the studio. They were cool, but just the self-induced pressure to play by the rules of a classic happy ending and the good guy kills the bad guy and all that sort of thing. Mm. And none of that happens. So that's pretty scary. You know, on the other hand, it's kind of exciting. Artistically, it's exciting. I don't want to just tell the same story again. Plus, we're teeing up a lot of stuff that gets paid off in, in later films. So I don't want to give the impression, by the way, that it's just kind of this bleeding open-ended thing where you just kind of drive off a cliff. Because as much as I love The Lord of the Rings, that first film just fucking ends. Like, what <laughs> the fuck? I got to wait until next year to see what happens next. You know, I mean, I love the films. I really do. Don't get yeah. me wrong. But yeah. holy shit. <laughs> Talk about a gamble. 
Um, there are two amazing quotes from you I want to discuss very, very briefly and how they pertain to the way of water. One I've already said to you guys tonight is in 2014, you said to this very magazine about this movie, you'll shit yourself with your mouth wide open. <laughs> Well, you see I don't know. Was that something you kept in mind as you were developing <laughs> yeah. a whiteboard? That was pretty much our goal, you know? <laughs> Just wrote that on the whiteboard every morning. Okay, guys, this is what we got to do. No, I think it, it's, it's surprisingly easy to get people around you who are designers and visual effects people that want to be on a team whose goal is to just have people gob, gobsmacked, Right. To just put on a, a big, high-quality show. And it's not as simple as just creating cool designs and doing cool effects. It's got to work in kind of perfect synchronization with the character stuff. So there are little tiny scenes in this movie where people just talk for like two pages, you know? Yeah. And then, the, then there's the big, fast-paced kind of epic stuff. It's all about, in my mind, it's about creating dynamic range. And and modulating it kind of symphonically toward a toward a culmination. There's another quote from you, which I wonder if you uh, still adhere to it a little bit. But I'm probably misquoting. But there's a you once said, "More less isn't more. More is more. More is more. More is more." Is that something you still you still cling to? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that said i think we've all seen movies over the last 10 years where more was too much you know <laughs> where it's like how many buildings do i need to see collapse with the good guy and the bad guy fighting through the buildings and by the way how many hundreds of thousands of people are lying dead in the wake of that <laughs> little fight you know um and it just goes on and on and on you know and, and until you're numb so one of the things I was really concerned about in this film, because a lot happens in the last act, um, is that it wasn't too exhausting to the point that people unplug. And I, I feel like we hit a pretty good balance where there's some pretty kinetic, adrenalized stuff, and then it stops. And then it turns into like a more emotional scene. It's, it's equally powerful, but it's just different, and it's quieter. And then it cranks up again. And then it gets quieter again. And so there's this, this kind of strange kind of dynamic. So I, I, you know, we tried to keep it always riveting, but it's not just once the action starts, you know, 30, 40 minutes of just the loudest shit you ever heard, you know, cause I think there's a little more to it than that. Um, but we always made sure that there was something compelling all the time. And, you know, you'll judge for yourselves when you see it. And maybe it's overkill for some people and maybe it's underkill for other, other people. But the key thing is to be emotionally invested um, at all times. I think that's absolutely critical. And there's never an action scene where a main character isn't at the center of it all the time, 100% of the time. We don't just cut to massive armies fighting just because it's cool. I've, I've seen the, uh, the movie described, and not by you, but as perhaps your most personal film. You're you're a father of five. You've got a, you know a family yeah, yourself. Yeah, I think it's valid. Yeah, I mean, on, on reflection, I don't think I thought about that at the time, but I was bringing to bear everything that I knew that I had experienced that was important to me. So my love of the ocean, the amount of time I've spent underwater, the awe and wonder that I have for the natural world, my love of in, indigenous culture, my fascination with that, and you know 
uh, my my feeling that the family is the most important thing. I talk about it. This family is our fortress, and it's not always fun. You know, it's sometimes irksome um, and problematic, and we see that too. And you know, and I wanted to I wanted to deal with it, like I said earlier, from the from the perspective of these these teenage characters. Um, you know, because I had been. Um, we're, you know, we're all, we've all been teens, right? So we know that that's like maybe in some ways the hardest time in your, in your life. Cause you don't know where you're going. You don't know where you fit in, you know, and you, you, your parents don't understand you, of course, cause all parents don't understand their teens. And, but I've been on the other side of it as well as a, as a father and my kids are mostly grown now, although I've, I have one that's about to turn 16. Um, but they're, you know, they're sort of either late teens or into their twenties and thirties actually. Um, and I've seen how you do it wrong as a parent. I've seen how you do it right. How you learn as you go along. And, you know, Jake's still on that curve. He isn't quite there yet as, as we see in the film. He's a pretty authoritarian dad because of his military background and because of the stakes, the survival stakes that they're that they're in in the middle of a war and as as refugees. Um, so you know, I'm just I'm just writing the things that that I've lived and that fascinate me. And so, in a way, it is pretty personal. Uh, but I think that's good. I think that's a strength as an artist to get your own stuff up there because you, you speak from authority and you have conviction because mm. um, you got you got to have conviction as a filmmaker it's got to be instinctive you know you can't sit and equivoc equivocate about every artistic decision you make 10,000 decisions a day little ones sometimes big ones um, as you go along and prior to this what would you say would be your most personal film with the abyss Qualified. Yeah, maybe the abyss. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good possibility. Sure. I mean, there's. I mean, look, there's personal stuff in every film. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, when I when I wrote Ripley and 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 the little girl in that is a bit abstract for me. I I wasn't a parent at that time. Mm -hmm. I can kind of project it. You know, I can kind of imagine Pretty what it would well, feel like. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, I mean, I think any good writer can project themselves yeah. into into other situations and make it real for themselves. You know, pro as a male writer, I can pro project myself into the female reality of a character, you know, like Lindsay in the Abyss or Sarah or, or, or whatever. You have to be able to do that. But it's, I, th I think it, you might have a slight advantage or at least it's more satisfying when it's something that you actually lived. And I can hear, I can hear echoes of things I've said. I can hear echoes of things my kids have said in the dialogue when I watch the movie. And they think it's hysterical. It's like, Dad, you think you're doing me, but that is so not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which is fine too. Yeah. You know. But finding the personal in something like Titanic where the stakes are so high. So high. So well, huge. Jack is a young, starving artist, right? So you know, I was I, I was a young, starving artist. You know, I never met anybody like like Kate, but you know, uh, that's the fantasy part. <laughs> but I always wanted to impress a girl with my portfolio. You know, <laughs> look at my sketches. Aren't I cool? You know. <laughs> and so there's obviously there's a line that tracks through from from the abyss, and and you know, well, let's leave Piranha Two aside for the, for the time being. Thank but you. the abyss. 
all the way through to Titanic, uh, all the way through to this movie yeah. of, of water. Yeah. Is that something that, that's driven you all? You, you've been fascinated with all, all your well, life? Well, look, I'm fascinated by diving. I love being underwater. There's some kind of strange connection there. I think that, that um, for those of you that aren't divers or especially free divers, there's something that happens when you get into that Zen state on a free dive where your heart rate is slowed down. That's a natural reaction of the human body to being under pressure. And you have the, the mammalian diving reflex, which causes everything to kind of slow down. Um, to do it successfully, you have to get into a very Zen mindset. You can't be agitated or your heart will speed up and you'll use oxygen faster. You have to force yourself to, to be extremely calm and to process very clearly, you know, in that state. So it's kind of meditative. It's quiet. You don't have a lot of scuba bubbles, you know, boiling past your ear. So you kind of hear the faint sounds of the, the, the creatures in the reef and you, you kind of feel a connection and you sense the movement of the water. You know, it's all very, uh, very, you know, primeval. It may, it may even be a triggering of sense memories that go back much farther than just mm your own lifespan maybe it's going back to the womb maybe it's the nine months we spend we spend suspended in weightlessness in fluid right and mm -hmm. it's a an atavistic memory maybe it's more atavistic than that maybe it's going back millions of years to prior states of being that are you know deeply encoded in our in our, our genome and our, our epigenetics right mm -hmm. um i can't account for it um i love it uh, you know i enjoy it I'm compelled artistically to deal with it, you know, uh, to share it. Even the documentary films, I'm bringing back experiences from underwater to share in a documentary format. So it goes way beyond, you know, you're just talking about the features, but I've done, I've done uh, probably six or seven uh, ocean-oriented documentary films, mm. more on the way, including most recently the Secrets of the Whales, you know, um, which, you know, was an, an Emmy winner last year. Mm -hmm. So that'll be on ongoing for me. But once again, it's just combining the things that I love into one story. So you, you took eight years off after Titanic to do a lot of diving. To do uh, deep exploration, yeah. You're not going to get that chance this time around, I'm guessing. Straight uh, into you know, I think I'm running out of eight-year tranches of <laughs> stuff I can go do if I want to get these Avatar movies done. Yeah, so uh, how deep are you in the weeds on Avatar 3 at the moment? Right now, nothing. I'm just enjoying a little break before I have to go back and finish my prison sentence. But uh, <laughs> no, it's it's shot, it's captured. I'm done with the actors, basically. So next we go into a phase that's basically what we call camera. So it's me picking up the virtual camera, doing the lighting for all the scenes, doing all the coverage, and then we edit it and fire it all off to to Weta uh, VFX, you know, for the for the finish work. Uh, they're they're in Wellington. I live in Wellington. They're they're right there in Wellington. So we know exactly how to how to do it. It's a it's a very creative process, mm. but it's not the most creative process. The most creative process is is the with the actors. Well, uh, on that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. But Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure. And please. Well, thanks. Thanks. I, I really enjoy this. And, and uh, you know, I love talking about the work. I don't get a chance to do it that much because we're busy doing the work. So, <laughs> so thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me here to do this. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Please give it up. James Cameron, everybody.